The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show. The Tom Sumner Program.com. I have to lay low for a while, so I'll be staying here inside. It's too dangerous out in the world. See you on the other side When I'm in my quarantine In my little place too high My heart is aching and I'm missing you I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side We're all in for a bumpy ride Without you here I hold on to this phone so tight And I'll whisper you a goodnight kiss I'll see you on the other side When I crawl out of my cage When the world is purified I will find you and I promise this I'll see you on the other side On the other side And I'll meet you with arms open wide I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side And I'll meet you with arms open wide I'll see you on the other side
for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner Show Oh Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is one of the five most popular photographers for National Geographic on Instagram. But we're going to talk about a new collection of his uh, photography featured in uh, a new book from National Geographic called Wild Seas. And, of course, the photographer I'm talking about uh, is Thomas Peshak, and he uh, joins me from his home in Cape Town, South Africa. Good morning, Thomas. Welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. appreciate it. You started out as a marine biologist. How did you end up deciding to take pictures? <laughs> I was a PhD student in the early 2000s in South Africa, and I was working on the on the impacts of poaching on abalone, which was this large endangered shellfish in the kelp forest out here. And my scientific data clearly showed that the populations were in freefall. They were declining at this incredibly alarming rate. But all my data and all my appeals, they fell on deaf ears. Nobody seemed to actually care about the statistics and the numbers I I was publishing at the time. And at the same time, I was doing all the research. I was also making photographs. largely, you know, for simple scientific conference presentations and for publications. And, um, you know, a few of those images and a few of those tales ended up also making it into the popular media, into popular publications, I mean, newspapers, local, regional first, and then magazines, and then internationally. And, and the response to those images was completely the opposite to the scientific papers. You know, the, the authorities and the people in power, they took note. And these images and tales from the poaching front line actually inspired action incredibly quickly. In a few short months, armed with only a handful of photographs, I, I had accomplished what I'd been unable to do with years of scientific data. And for me, Tom, that was a real game-changing moment. That was sort of like a aha moment where I said, you know what? Maybe I can achieve more through photographs than actually with scientific statistics. And... I always wanted to be a marine biologist because I wanted to make a difference in conservation. And once I realized that perhaps I could do greater good with images, that began a very sort of slow and, and determined transition from science into photography and into storytelling. And how did that, land, how, how did that result in your becoming a National Geographic Explorer and Fellow? Look, you know, National Geographic is sort of the, the, you know, the pinnacle that I think every photographer aspired to, but that's not where we begin, of course. You know, I, you know, I began really working, you know, through local and regional publications. It took me three, four, five years to get to a point where, 
where National Geographic t- took note. And um, I, the way I did it, I began working almost exclusively in my backyard. You know, most people come to Southern Africa to photograph lions and elephants and giraffes and zebras. Sure. There's nothing wrong with that, but we also have this incredible coastline. We have this incredible marine realm that people were largely ignoring at the time. And I made a reputation internationally for probably one of the few, if not the only photographer who was really documenting that marine realm at the time. And since I was the only person with the images, it was relatively easy to transition into international publications. And after a few years, National Geographic took note. Uh, I did my first assignment for them in 2007. And now, you know, 15 plus years later, um, yeah, you know, 15 stories and many books and, and, and later, you know, they are pretty much my, you know, the main, my main outlet for telling critical marine conservation stories and narratives. So it certainly wasn't overnight. It never is. It was a very slow transition from, you know, scientist to photographer for other magazines and publications to National Geographic. Well, National Geographic has been around for more than 100 years, and for a lot of us, it's the way we see the world and its people and animals and, um, and, and land masses and, and landmarks. And it, one of the things about National Geographic is the photographs, because of people like you, Thomas, are are just these amazing things that we might never see in our lifetime if not for people like you out there capturing those images. And the reproductions in National Geographic are stunning. I mean, they do such a great job of reproducing those photographs for print and, and even the images that they, they share on their, uh, on their website. But I, I want to ask you this as someone who's interested in, in conservation. So much of what we see captured in the pages of National Geographic is commenting on, on the beauty and, and the amazingness of life on this planet. And it's often portrayed as beautiful and and might give people the impression oh well heck look at these pictures everything is fine how do you as a photographer and a conservationist use those images to teach people about what needs to be done in terms of conservation and what the risks are that's a wonderful question tom look i mean the reality is you can't fall in love with something you don't know that exists. It's really that simple, but it's also <laughs> that profound at the same time. You've said that before. Often, you know, my, my job as a National Geographic photographer is really to, to dive beneath that reflective, you know, mirrored ocean surface and first and foremost reveal an alien but a fascinating realm. And I, and I do this in two ways. I mean, first, I feel I have to inspire people. And I do this by showing them these incredibly pristine marine habitats and these, and these magical creatures. And hopefully the audience goes, wow, I cannot believe this place is beautiful as this really exists on our planet. However, I'm a photojournalist and I'm a realist. And I also have to reveal the, the truth and, and that darker side of our relationship with the ocean. And that includes the impacts of pollution and climate change and overfishing. So 
you know, as, as a conservation photographer, I always walk this incredibly fine line between what I call the carrot and the stick, between inspiring and disturbing. I mean, too much beauty, <laughs> and that results in complacency, right? Exactly. Too much gore leads to hope, right? So, so I, I try my best to tell really balanced and honest stories that get people to think and act and to ultimately, hopefully, try to make a difference themselves because... You know, being active in conservation very often involves having to change one's own behavior. It has to, it means having to do something that might be inconvenient. And for me, the best way to get people to inspire to do that is to fall in love with the place or an animal, hopefully, and realize how threatened or how what they're doing is contributing to the threat, and then offer them solutions. You know, you know, highlight individuals, inspiring research and conservationists who are who've dedicated their life to saving that species and that ecosystem. And then, you know, real world hints in terms of what can you as an individual do? Because look, let's be honest. I mean, marine conservation is not the exclusive domain of, of photographers like myself or biologists or filmmakers or conservationists. I mean, it's everyone's responsibility and, you know, never ever underestimate the power as an individual, um, you know, and as part of a larger community, because, you know, the decisions that you make, whether it's about the seafood that you eat or the things you buy or what you throw away, they all make an impact. And collectively, they are what is going to change the world in the long term. So um, I hope that my work inspires people to make tough decisions and to inconvenience themselves and actually engage in behaviors that actually are, are you know, net positive for the oceans rather than are destructive and net negative. Now, I mentioned you live in uh, Cape Town, South Africa. How did, have you always lived there? How did you come to live in Cape Town? Well, I, I came to South Africa in the late 1990s to do my PhD at the university here, looking at kelp forest and the abalone poaching. And I never left. It kind of became my home base, and I've been living out here for more than 20 years. But in a normal year, I will be on assignment in the field for 250-plus days a year. So this is where... You know the, the Land Rovers and the books and the houses, but um, you know this is my my bolt hole where I recover in between assignments. Um, yeah, I was going to ask about that because I've interviewed uh, several photographers, and it just seems like you know you're you're jumping from one assignment to the next, and you know it begs the question: Do you live anywhere, or do you live everywhere? <laughs> Um, I live everywhere, but over the years, I found that having having a single base, having a place to return to, having your own bed, having your books, having your own things, I think that becomes quite critical because when you are in the field, Tom, when you are on assignment, you are putting in 200 million percent of every day into the story. You are living and breathing that narrative. I mean, you're giving it all. So when you arrive home, you very often arrive spent and exhausted and tired, and I think you need those short breaks, you know, from the road to you know, reinvigorate yourself. Because, look, I think all of us at National Geographic, we are driven by a passion for telling, you know, critical conservation stories, and, and it's that passion that really drives us, and I think that passion needs to be recharged. And for me, it's basically coming home for a few weeks and just kind of, you know, you know, re regaining and kind of recovering so I can get back out there and, and, and tell more stories and hopefully and hopefully you know, keep making making a difference globally. More with National Geographic photographer Thomas Pishak straight ahead. Hello darling, this is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark with Tom Sumner. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Hello. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. 
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with National Geographic photographer Thomas Pishak straight ahead. Where are you from originally? My uh, my dad was born in Germany. My mom is Dutch, and I grew up all over all over the place. So I've been a nomad since I was very young, and I think that <laughs> lifestyle has just continued on with me. Uh, I don't really know any other way to live. So um, yeah, it was pretty easy for me to not transition at all from being a nomad to being a nomad. <laughs> now, Thomas, I mentioned the uh, the new book from National Geographic, Wild Seas. Um, are all of the photos in that book from your collection? Uh, pictures you have taken yeah yes they are so basically i mean i've been i've been a national geographic photographer 15 years and i've i've made more than a million images during that time and for this book i i specifically scoured my archive to select my favorite 200 images you know made that i made on, on dozens of challenging expeditions to some of the you know wildest seas on our planet and now, the images in this book, I mean, they tell the stories of unique animals, be it great white sharks or manta rays, marine iguanas or common dolphins. And they talk about pristine places. I mean, places like the Galapagos and the Seychelles and Antarctic islands. And, and together, these images sort of collectively tell the, the story of, of our planet's rich and fragile oceans. But, but the book also really tells my own personal story. You know, from a, a fish-obsessed 10-year-old boy, you know, wanting to become a marine biologist, to, to much, much later, you know, making the leap to, to National Geographic photographer and explorer. And, and, and the text that goes with the images, it really reveals what, what life was like for me on assignment for National Geographic. I mean, the, you know, the highs and lows, you know, the agony and the ecstasy, the warts and all. I mean, what does it take to, to travel to the edges of the world and come back with these iconic images you see in the magazine or on Instagram? You know, that's, that's really what this book is all about. And for me, Wild Seas was really inspired by both love and by fear. You know, love for the oceans and, and fear that future generations simply will not get to experience them the way I have. And, you know, there's this legendary conservationist, George Schaller, who has this amazing quote. And he says, I mean, pen and camera are weapons against oblivion. They can raise awareness wow. for that which may soon be lost forever. And I truly hope that this book will play a very small part in ensuring that the beauty and the life contained within our oceans will not be lost forever. And I've had all these wonderful experiences you know, in the oceans, and I truly hope that more people will get to have them. I mean, whether that's the, you know, the rush of swimming with sharks, or the, you know, the overwhelming, you know, riotous sound of a penguin colony, hundreds of thousands of strong, or whether it's smelling, you know, the, the rich bouquet of a gray whale sneeze, which smells horrendous, by the way. Um, <laughs> you know, all those experiences, I hope, you know, will be preserved for future generations. And I hope that this book and my images and my stories will, will make a very small contribution to ensuring that. Well, Tom, you mentioned being, starting out as a 10-year-old boy who loved fish. What was it about your travels uh, growing up that that exposed you to sea life, and and how did you first fall in love with fish? I think you know um, I, I was sort of very much drawn to the oceans from a young age. I mean, it was just a really fascinating realm. The first time I snorkeled, I was ten years old, and um, 
you know, you're on land, it's noisy, it's loud, there's lots of people, there's lots of things, and then you put your head underwater and all of a sudden everything just goes quiet. And, you know, it's almost like in, in a matter of a few seconds you're able to travel to this alien planet, to this completely other realm. And um, I remember diving, you know, snorkeling on this coral reef, I, and I'm swimming along as a 10-year-old, and, and, and there's this old encrusted cannon on the reef. And, you know, and I remember just spinning, like, furiously trying to reach this cannon, and I finally managed to grab hold of it. And when I looked up, there was this cloud of fish around my head, and it was just the, these fish in all shapes and colors and sizes. And, and, and that was sort of this real milestone moment where I said, wow. I want to be here forever. This realm is just utterly incredible. And of course, you run out of air pretty quickly. You rush back to the surface. And I think from that moment onward, subconsciously, I, I want to do everything in my power to try to spend as much time near or in or under the ocean as possible. And I think, you know, from that sort of, you know, year onwards, I remember t telling everybody who would listen, I was going to become a marine biologist. And I watched all the Jacques Cousteau documentaries, of course, and the classic National Geographic articles. And, and, but, of course, I didn't want to be a photographer at that stage. I wanted to be the scientist that was in, in the pages of National Geographic. You know, that was, I wanted to dive with sleeping sharks in caves in Mexico or, or, or under the ice with Weddell seals in Antarctica. Um, the whole notion of being able to be a photographer to actually make these images, that came much, much, much later. It was definitely you know, marine biology for a long, long time before I, you know, I realized that perhaps for me, I could make a bigger difference through photographs than through statistics. But of course, I mean, you know, marine biologist still underpins everything I do. You know, for each article I do, you know, I sometimes read hundreds, if not a thousand scientific papers. I speak with dozens of researchers. So I, you know, the research still underpins everything I do, but it's the photographs that actually now tell the story and that, you know, are just a much more powerful and more, you know, more accessible way to share my passion and to share my fears you know, about what's happening to the, to the ocean realm. With all of the pictures you've taken, and, and you mentioned a little bit about how you went through more than a million images to select the 200 that are in the book Wild Seas, um, but how do you end up deciding what you're going to shoot uh, and and how often are you able to find places that even you didn't know were there look you know most people think or a lot of people believe that being a national geographic photographer you spend most of your time with a camera on your neck or with a camera underwater making the images in actual fact to be honest i probably less I probably spend less than 10% of my time clicking the shutter. Most of my energy is spent finding the story. And once I've found the story and figured out what story I want to tell and why it's important, it's then figuring out, okay, I have to fill 30 pages. What are the pictures that will help me tell that story? Where can I get them? When can I get them? How will I make them? You know, the, 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 you know, for every day in the field, I sometimes will spend a week doing research, trying to figure things out. And so the, the research is critical. If I were to just rock up at a place and randomly try to make images, I would fail 
miserably time and time again. It's really, it's really the research. I, I mean, I arrive on location with lists of images. I will sometimes even sketch them in a little notebook just to kind of get an idea of how I want things, things to look. And, and a lot of people say to me, isn't that very restrictive? Aren't you, you, know, aren't you narrowing yourself down? But for me, doing all this research gives me the freedom to be, you know, flexible and opportunistic. I mean, having this deep knowledge gives me the confidence to, to, to explore a marine realm and to speak to researchers and to be out there and to instinctively know, you know what to document and when and how. Um, so the research component is a very neglected thing. It's not the sexiest thing. Most of us don't talk about it, but without it, you would never see any of those iconic images, and, you, and I certainly wouldn't be in those places where those incredible moments happened before my eyes. None of that is luck. None of that is accident. We are putting ourselves in these situations very, you know, very, um, you know, for a reason. It is all planned out, and and yeah. So so I think research is probably the you know single most underrated time that a National Geographic for photographer spends time on. And, and how, um, do, how does that? How does that work, Tom? Do you have assignment editors that contact you and say, we'd like you to do something on this? Or is it you come up with the ideas and, and pitch them to National Geographic? So um, once you're sort of, you know, once you are a National Geographic photographer, once you've proven yourself and once they, they are confident that you're going to be able to come back with the goods, you know, I pitch everything... I pretty much propose every story I've ever done. So, um, you know, most of us in the business, you know, we have backgrounds in, in, you know, in the, the subject that we photograph. You know, me as a, as a photographer who covers the oceans and coastlines and islands and conservation, I have a background in biology. You know, the guy or the, you know, the person, the photographer who covers archaeology, he has a background in that. So we are actually all experts in the subject matter who've decided to kind of, instead of, you know, talking through scientific journals, we're now using photography as a different language. So, yeah, no, I, I come up with the ideas, you know, I pitch them, and then, and then I go out and, 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 and photograph them. And, and then I work with my editor to put them together and to figure out you know, which images are we going to use, how are we going to line them up, how is the story going to come together. And, you know, and sometimes, you know, that can take a year or more to do one of these stories. I mean, as I alluded to earlier, you know, I... I'm in the field for months and months and months at, at a time, and, and, and there's weeks go by when I don't make a single image, you know, uh, because, you know, like I alluded to earlier, we're looking for these iconic and, and, and unique, you know, visuals that are incredibly hard and tough to make. And, and, and National Geographic is really the last publication out there that gives natural history and conservation and wildlife photographers like me the time and the resources to tell these powerful in-depth stories. So, um, yeah, incredibly grateful and privileged for that unique opportunity, which is getting, you know, rarer and rarer and harder and harder to find. I, I have a, a an acquaintance uh, here in Michigan who has always been fascinated by uh, shipwrecks in the Great Lakes, and, and he's uh, done a lot of um, video underwater. He's written a couple of books mm -hmm. on Edmund Fitzgerald and some of the other shipwrecks. But he told a, a great story. You were talking, Tom, about watching Jacques Cousteau <laughs> when you were young. And uh, this this uh, friend of mine uh, 
found out that the Calypso was going to be sailing uh, through the uh, Erie Canal, and it was, you know, on the surface, and there were people, you know, that knew about it. It was in the local papers and so on, and so there were crowds, uh, you know, on on the the bank there, um, waving, you know, hoping to get a glimpse of Jacques Cousteau. And this friend of mine put his resume on a long pole and handed it to somebody on the boat. <laughs> I thought you'd get a kick out of that. And I think he actually heard back and may have uh, interned for a short time on the Calypso, but... That's all about ingenuity, right? At the end of the day, you know, you know what you want, and, and if that means putting your resume on a long stick and and waiting for Jacques Cousteau to sail by, then that's what it's going to take. And you know, <laughs> Is, that's admirable. Am, am I remembering this fraction correctly? That the Earth is four fifths water. It is. It, it occupies a. I think it's two thirds. The majority of the planet is ocean, and if you look at our little green, our little you know, marble from space, you'll see how much is covered by blue. And, and the oceans are, you know, not only a, a, a critical habitat for so many species, but also, I mean, they're they're the lifeblood of our planet. You know, whether it's the production of oxygen or as a, as a reservoir and a, and a sink for carbon. I mean, the oceans are, you know, the you know a very, very critical a critical ecosystem. And because we can't breathe underwater, it is an ecosystem that most people have not had the experience to explore themselves. And, you know, for me, I always say, you know, if you could give every individual the opportunity to, uh, to go for a snorkel or go for a scuba dive, you know, that experience would make hundreds of millions of conservationists overnight. But, of course, most people don't have the privilege to experience what I see on a daily basis I think photography and filmmaking and National Geographic in particular is sort of the, you know, the next best thing to share that environment with, with, with people who, who don't get to experience firsthand and, and, and try to make imagery and tell stories that really get, you know, get the public as excited and make them fall as in love with that ecosystem as I am. Um, you know, through images and through stories. And, and um, I'm always, I'm almost, so you know happy and surprised whether it's after you know getting responses to articles or on instagram or or national geographic live talks or books signings how how people who will probably never ever ever get to experience the underwater world themselves how how excited they are and how how much pleasure they get and how they they you know how it inspires them to do their bit for conservation by just seeing my images on the printed page or or online, so I mean that's always a you know a huge motivation to me to keep on going. Well, and I wanted to bring that up so that you would talk a little bit about the importance of of the ocean, not just for the ocean life, the the um, sea creatures, if you will, but but just in terms of the ecosystem of the whole planet. And I thought you know, we just have a few minutes left, but I thought maybe I'd I'd ask what some of the risks are to the ocean and the environment as a result. And and what can regular people do um, to maybe lessen some of the challenges the oceans face? Oh, you know, you know the, the list of threats is unfortunately endless, but I would say the two most significant threats to the ocean health right now are overfishing and climate change. 
And to combat both of those, I mean, that really requires significant change to our collective behavior as humans, as a species. And I mean, from an overfishing perspective, I mean, the consumer has most of the power. You know, when you walk into a restaurant and you order seafood, if that's what you decide to do, or you go to a supermarket, I mean, find out where your seafood comes from. And there is apps now where you can actually type in the name of the fish and you can make sure that all the fish you consume, if you choose to eat fish, comes from sustainable local fisheries. And you can avoid I mean, those fisheries that do the most damage. You know, the, 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 you know, the information is out there. We, we just have to arm ourselves with it and we have to, you know, make decisions and, and really make our voices hurt through our wallets by not purchasing you know, seafood that, you know, has, has negative impacts on ocean ecosystems or that involve endangered species or that are not, you know, local sustainable fisheries. Um, so I think that's where the consumer has a huge amount of power to make a gigantic difference because if you don't buy that fish anymore, the restaurant is unlikely to order it from their supplier and then the supplier is unlikely to order that from the fishermen. So at the end of the day, you know, we, you know, this is really a ground swell upwards movement. Um, climate change you know, there's a lot of things I think that the individual can do to lower their own carbon footprint. But at the end of the day, you know, this is a global, very complicated, connected issue. And I think this needs to happen on a global policy level. So I think for me, the most effective way to combat climate change and ocean degradation is to elect politicians who have a decisive agenda. You know, one around, you know, reducing CO2 emissions and you know, individuals who champion renewable energy and who actually have a have a policy around climate change and around ocean conservation and be able to give them the mandate to negotiate at a, at a platform and at a level where the, where the individual is not able to. And I think collectively, you know, that individual sort of grassroots, you know, power, you know, with having, having mindful and, and educated representation on a government level, I think collectively that is the only thing that can make a difference both on the overfishing and on the climate change agenda as far as I'm concerned. Well, Tom, I feel like we're just getting started and yet we're uh, almost out of time. I I appreciate um, meeting you and getting a chance to talk with you. It's been an honor and a privilege. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website, uh, absolutely. You know, the, uh, the two best places to kind of, you know, remain in touch with me and see what I'm up to is, I mean, you can, you can, you know, I'm, I'm very active on Instagram. My handle there is at uh, Thomas Peshak, which is T-H-O-M-A-S, and then it's P-E-S-C-H-A-K. You know, I post, you know, three, four times a week, and, and, and you can see my latest work there. And then for perhaps a more, a little bit more in-depth dive, my website is uh, thomaspeshak.com. And there you can also find most of my stories and most of the images. And, of course, my books, you know, as well. I mean, especially the latest, The Wild Seas one is a really, you know, a really, you know, great collection to kind of see, you know, from the earliest days to images that I've, I made only last year. Sort of a real, a real, you know, roller coaster ride of, of life as a National Geographic photographer and, you know, showcasing some of my favorite stories and favorite images from in almost 15 years of photography. And Tom, what's next for you? Oh, um, I <laughs> am going to be, uh, basically, I mean, what isn't next? 
Um, I'm working on, on two other projects at the moment. One is on kelp forest in southern Africa, and the other is based out in northern Mozambique, um, which I will have be, which I will have completed by by April next year, and then I disappear off into the Amazon for two years for a um, a project that is still sort of in under wraps a little bit. But yeah, I can I can kind of allude and hint at that. Well, now. <laughs> well, Thomas, it's been a real treat, and uh, thank you so much, and keep up the good work. Thank you for having me, Tom. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity. Have a lovely day. Take care. That was uh, Thomas Pishak. He is, uh, well, he's considered one of the five most popular photographers for National Geographic on Instagram, but there's a new book from National Geographic called Wild Seas, which is a collection of uh, 200 images and the stories behind them from around the globe, all taken uh, throughout the uh, career of uh, Thomas Pichat. And with that, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program.
This is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Lions. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The Unknown Comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. Hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to AmericanSchismBook.com. 
MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. All the Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. One, two, three, four, five. Again now the boat ashore Hallelujah I go row the boat ashore keep it rolling Hallelujah Everybody hum Wait a second Dicky Dick we we hum it this I want to go back to the start and take it one more time from the top what? Michael row the boat ashore I just like everybody to join in this time Okay one more time Okay right. Gang in a world torn asunder by strife and by unhappiness, what sound in the world enters into our heart and brings love and brotherhood but the sound of people's voices joining together and singing? So let's roof the rafters, people. Let's fill this room with the most joyous sound known to man. People. People singing. For in the ether of the air, in the great sky of, of, the, of the faraway land, Fill the sky, the musical sky, with voices intertwining themselves in a giant choral arrangement like colors in your mind and lines going up and down as the voices of people join together. So friends, let's fill this room with love. Let's fill this room with music and song. For people driving by, maybe outside, they'll be in their car and we'll be in here singing, they'll be driving by and, and as they drive by they'll probably say, what the hell's going on? Let's sing out now, friends. Michael, row the boat ashore. Sing out. Hallelujah. Michael, row the boat ashore. Hallelujah. Everybody. Wait a second, that guy wasn't singing there. <laughs> Which guy? The, girl, the guy with the, the girl with the blonde hair. You the weren't singing that, very the, well there. Would you join in with us and fill it? You will? You will? You'll sing with us now, huh? Go ahead. <laughs> Here we go, gang. 
Michael rowed the boat ashore. that boat ashore. Come on, Mike. Everybody sing now. Michael, help to trim the sails. Hallelujah. Michael, help to trim the sails. Hallelujah. Everybody Trim those sails. Trim those sails. Pull on those oars, baby. <laughs> hey, I know what let's do again. Now, what do you want to do? Every time we, we, we're humming, you want to do something different? Well, I have an idea that I like. Why don't we, gang, why don't... People with love in your hearts... Are let's all show our love. Let's all open. Let's start the hum. Go back to the. Take it from the top of the hum. Top of the hum. But this time, let's all hum with our mouths open. Hum well, it. Well, why do you want to do that? We get more volume. Well, if we, why do you? We have plenty of volume. Why do you want more volume? So that Michael can hear us. Maybe even Ralph will hear us. <laughs> hear us also. So gang, let's all hum with our mouths open this time and get Tommy, a little more volume. That's a nice idea. Really, that's a great idea. But you so, cannot hum with your mouth open. Yes, you do. All you you have don't to... ask anybody to hum with their mouth open. Yes, all you have you to do... You can't do that. You so old. Listen, if you tried to hum with your mouth open, you could hurt yourself. That's too bad. Yeah. So he is. I'll tell you what. If you want more volume, why don't you ask everybody to aw. Oh. I mean, not just a regular ah, but like this. Ah, 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 ah. See, it's louder, it's easy to do, and if you ask everybody in this entire room to ah together in unison to Michael, you will experience a thrilling, exciting, vibrant, it'll be a, a vibrant experience, tremendous. Let's all open up our hummers now and all ah together, okay? Everybody except you. You hum with your mouth open. <laughs> Hear that, Michael? <laughs> we'll help you trim those sails and roll that boat, won't we, gang? Everybody. Michael This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Christian Radio For a new generation Tom Sumner Program.com Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner Show Oh yeah Well, there it up for today's three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner program. I'm always amazed at how fast the three hours goes by sometimes, but especially when you have great guests like we did today, including uh, one of National Geographic's most popular nature photographers, Thomas Pishak, talking about um, the new book featuring uh, 200 of his uh, photographs. Uh, from National Geographic, Wild Seas is the name of the book. And before that, we got to talk with a senior plastics campaigner. I didn't even know what that was until today. But from uh, Greenpeace, talking about uh, a recent report uh, titled The Climate Emergency Unpacked. And I spoke with um, Lisa Ramsden from Greenpeace about that. And then we started off this morning, and and this was really interesting, with a climate policy insider. Um, He's uh, chairman of the World Resources uh, Institute and uh, also involved with the Egyptian American Enterprise Fund. And... uh, we were talking a little bit about the uh, the politics and economic development and and how climate change and economic development can and should and in some cases already do coexist with uh, James Harmon. It was great talking with James. James has a uh, book coming out later this month called uh, Up and Doing. Two Presidents, Three Mistakes, and One Great Weekend, Touch Points to a Better World. Anyway, uh, that wraps it up uh, for today's edition, mostly about climate change, in part because of uh, the President's uh, recent trip abroad and uh, COP26 and so on. But there's Smoking George Winters tickling the ivories. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room for the weekend, and I'm looking forward to it. can't believe how fast the whole week has gone, let alone today's show. Uh, But with all that in mind, I will be back Monday morning with another edition of the Tom Sumner program starting at 9 a.m. Eastern. And uh, I hope you'll I hope you'll join me. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. 
Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.